This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast Show 841. What's going on, everyone? It's David Green, your host of the Bigger Pockets Real Estate Podcast, the biggest, the best, the baddest real estate podcast on the planet every week, bringing you the stories, how to's, and the answers that you need to make smart real estate decisions now in the current market. I'm joined today by my co host, Rob Abasolo, with an incredibly insightful show on the topic of bringing you up to date information. We have Ben Miller of Fundrise, who is talking about our current economy what's going on with it, and how we can position ourselves to survive or maybe even thrive in the face of some pretty serious changes. Rob, what are some of your thoughts after today's show? What should people keep an eye out to listen for? I think that we're going to get some mindset changes from the people that have been in very aggressively acquiring, you know, the that that set of investors may change how they think and approach real estate over the next couple of years. But very good, insightful, philosophical talk from Ben. I mean, he really brought it, man. This guy is I mean, a recession genius, if you will, which is a very weird accolade to have, but he knows his stuff. Yeah. Although this is a bigger new show, it's more like bigger conversations. And Ben brings a lot of insight as someone who has studied actual recessions. You don't find a lot of people who have dedicated so much of their life to studying something so depressing, but I'm sure glad we got him. So before we bring Ben in to talk about what's going on in the economy and specifically the world of real estate, today's quick tip is very simple. Take some time to redefine what success looks like. For a decade, we have only defined success by how much real estate you acquired. And it may be time to look at if keeping the real estate that you have or improving your financial position, if cutting down on your debt might be a bigger flex than just adding more. Whenever I used to travel, I would get that creeping feeling that I locked my back door. How do I know my property is going to be safe while I'm away? But not anymore, thanks to Simply Safe Home Security. I'm about to go on a three week trip to Copenhagen, but am I tripping about my trip? Nope. With award winning security and peace of mind from Simply Safe, I don't need to worry. Simply Safe is a super amazing alarm system that I actually installed in my house myself personally in less than 30 minutes. And there's so much peace of mind knowing that there's something in place to protect my homes, my goods, and my John Mayer shrine. Simply Safe systems have high tech sensors that detect break ins, fires, and floods, indoor and outdoor cameras to keep watch night and day. 24-7 professional monitoring at less than $1 a day. Plus, Simply Safe professional monitoring agents can even help stop crime in real time by speaking to intruders through the wireless indoor camera. Hey, hey, bud, get out of here. It's like that, but it's a lot better, I imagine. And if you buy the system and you don't love it, you can get a full refund with Simply Safe's 60-day money-back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/pockets. There's no safe like Simply Safe. The easiest way to collect rent? Rent app. Rent app is a seamless, secure, free payment tool for small rental property owners like you and me. Built by a team of fintech veterans behind Square and Cash App, Rent App uses ACH bank transfers to deposit rent directly into your account. Landlords love Rent App for its unbeatable convenience. Isn't it time you made rent collection easier? Rent App, the free and easy way to collect rent. Learn more at rent.app/landlord. That's rent.app/landlord. Every lender loves to talk about how easy it is to get a mortgage. Then, when it's time to fund your next deal, they ask for your full financials, your blood type, your mother's famous spaghetti recipe, and a map to the fountain of youth. Sound familiar? You got all that handy, right? Why not switch to a lender who actually makes qualifying for a loan easy? A lender like Host Financial. Host Financial takes the tedious tax returns, endless W-2s, and time-consuming financial requests out of the picture. 
Their light dock and common sense underwriting guidelines mean frictionless transactions every time. You'll even be able to use the actual or projected income of the short-term or long-term rental you're looking to purchase or pull equity out of. That's what lending built for investors looks like. So take the next step and grow your portfolio faster. Visit hostfinancial.com to request a quote in as fast as 60 seconds, which is faster than this ad. If not, it's pretty close. That's host, H-O-S-T, financial.com. Again, that's host, H-O-S-T, financial.com. All right, let's get into it. Ben has a long career in real estate and finance slash tech. He's the CEO of Fundrise that currently has over $3 billion in assets under management, a father of three who resides in Washington, D.C., and as a fun fact, his dog Zappa is the company mascot for Fundrise. Ben, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. What kind of a dog is Zappa? What? Pound puppy. Oh, I remember pound puppies. Rob, are you old enough to remember those? Uh, <laughs> are they puppies that weigh a pound? Just kidding, just kidding. No, I, I don't know what a pound... I mean, I assume it's... Uh, are you saying like a pound? Do I remember the concept of a pound? It was a toy for kids. It was like a type of stuffed animal that were called pound. Oh, God. They it. still have them. I actually yeah. saw it in the Target uh, toy section. They 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 made a comeback there again. Have you noticed those, Ben? I didn't even realize when I said that it was like dating me. <laughs> Welcome to my life. Rob always pretends like he doesn't know anything I'm saying. He's only like five years younger than me, but he acts like he's 25 <laughs> years younger than me. What? what? What are you referring to? A pencil? What is that? Is that? How does that work on a tablet? I'm so, I'm so sorry. A, pe- a pencil? <laughs> so, Ben, you mentioned you're obsessed with the recession. I don't think I've ever really heard those words in that order uh, when it comes to recession. So what? why are you obsessed or what are you obsessed about? Just to clear that up for us. Yeah. I guess it's a little bit like somebody who's like um, hit by a car or something and they're afraid to cross the street afterwards. Mm. Like if you, I've been through two like major ones. I went through um, 2001 and 2008. And um, I worked for a tech company in 99 to 01. And that company went out of business. And tech basically was like destroyed, destroyed for like three to four years after that. And then I was in real estate after that. And real estate was destroyed absolutely destroyed in 2008, 9, 10. And so like I came away from those experiences like saying like 80% of like what happens in the world happens during these crises. Like we just saw it. We saw, I mean, like, the last few years has been, I mean, it's just been crazy. The amount that's happened in a short amount of time. And so it just made me obsessed with these periods. So it's sort of the, it, the fear of it happening again and being exposed when the music stops and you got no chair to sit in. It's a combination of fear or like, I would say like appreciation of the full power of the ocean. Like if you swim, is the ocean so vast and also like opportunity. Cause I, I watched a lot of companies like survive and flourish out of recessions, a lot of people. And it's like, um, most of the time you spend, you know, your day to day doing the same thing. It's pretty, it's pretty stable days. Like today's like tomorrow, yesterday was like today. Uh, and then sometimes it's not, and it's really like those times it's not, that's the greatest, you know, risk and opportunities. So David, you mentioned you've been a skeptic for a while. The past couple of weeks, you've changed your mind specifically. Is that because of anything that's, that you're experiencing in your market or anything like that? I don't know if I'd say I'd changed my mind yet. I sort of hold these things with an open hand. 
right? As I'm looking at it, I see like, okay, it looks like we're heading in this direction, but I'm not going to be making these videos that like we are heading to doomsday and it's going to be the worst ever because you go back five years and there's people that have been calling for these crashes the whole time and they don't happen. And then some news comes out that changes things. Like what if tomorrow all of a sudden they drop rates from seven and a half to three? probably would have an impact on our economy. I can't guarantee that it wouldn't stop a recession, but it very well might. So it's hard when you're trying to predict what's going to come in the future with all of the moving pieces that we have. My take on a lot of this, or I guess to answer your question, Rob, of why do I see this happening? I'm noticing a lot of companies are laying people off. So when I, in my 40 years of wisdom in life that I've developed, what I've noticed is that a lot of the economy is a momentum thing and it depends on psychology. When you feel wealthy, you spend money. When you spend money, you make other people wealthy. They feel wealthy, they spend money. So your real estate goes up in value. You feel like you're wealthy. Your stock portfolio goes up. You go out to eat more often. You buy a more expensive car. The restaurant owner and all the waiters, they get more money. The person who sold the car, they get more money. So now they take a vacation the hospitality industry does well. They start hiring more people. Those people start to get more money. They can pay higher rent on their houses or they go buy a house. Everyone does better when money is changing hands faster. When we raise rates, we slow the velocity of money. Money starts changing hands slower. People feel less wealthy. They spend less money. And now the momentum is going in the opposite direction. But it's often psychological. Like It's very difficult for us to pin and say what is what would what we could do to stop it it's often what you could do to make people feel like it's okay to spend money or how you get money changing hands and frankly i've just noticed a lot of companies have been looking at their p&ls and saying we don't need this many employees and they're laying people off people at one point were complaining about having a w2 like it was the worst thing ever and they were a victim because they couldn't get financial freedom by 25 and they had to have a job and i think a lot of these people are now saying oh man i wish i had my job can i get another job and it can get a lot worse how does that sound rob that's good. And I, I think you're getting at this question, this point that I, I call it magnitude, but you described it as a, a similar way, which is essentially there's a feedback loop. And what happens, I think, is that when things go, go well and things get hot, like they get hotter than anything could possibly make sense, right? We mm. saw that with meme stocks and crypto and, and just things just got crazy in 2021. And like the exact reverse can happen too. When things go bad, they can just get totally illogically bad. And I think that when people are like looking at the odds of recession, they're not adjusting for the magnitude of how bad it could get. Because it's just not logical it would get as bad as it does. Like in 2008 or 2001, like it just didn't make it. We got beyond logical. And it's because it's not logical, right? You said it's psychological, it's emotional. It's, um, you know, people are forced sellers. By, by events outside their hands. And so that kind of magnitude, I think, it's really hard for people to appreciate without going through mm-hmm. you know, one or two yourself. And so when I, every time I think of my odds, I always try to adjust them to sort of this, like the scale of the, of the risk, the scale of the problem, not just the odds of it happening. Yeah, and you've studied data from the past nine recessions. And based on that, you've come to some conclusions. So what are some of those things that you've realized after looking at other recessions, patterns that you've picked up for what to expect? Well, so uh, one of the things I've learned is that if you want to understand the future, you should look at the past. And so I, I was convinced there was going to be a recession. I've been convinced since, you know, since basically Ukraine, Russia invaded Ukraine. And I was perplexed by why there hasn't been one yet. 
So I just went back and looked at the last, I guess you go, I went back to how far, you know, Fed data goes. And so Fed data goes to like mid 1950s. And there's been six, maybe if you think March 2027 recessions in that period since 1969, and they actually all follow a pattern. And the pattern's really clear. And this was the thing that surprised me because I didn't know. So the Fed starts raising rates because they're trying to cool the economy down. They raise rates like slowly and take some like, whether it usually takes them about a year to 18 months to fully raise rates. And then once they finish raising rates at a peak, there's a lag. There's a lag that lasts on average 10 months from the peak of when they raise rates. So like they peaked raising rates in July and the average lag is 10 months. So 10 months from July is when the recession would on average hit. So that's like May 2024. That's a long time from now. And that's just, that's what happens. Like it happened in 2006, it happened in 2000, uh, in 2000, in 1989, in 1980. And so it's like, I was like, oh, wow, this is, I didn't appreciate that's such a long, it's such a long lag. And why is that, Ben? Why is there such a, why does it take 10 months or however long you're talking about? What's the reason for that? I mean, it's, there's like general reasons and specifically what's happening today. So like the general reasons is that monetary policy is like a very indirect way to affect the economy. If you get into it a little technically, like, you know, the, basically nobody borrows from the Fed, right? No people do. You, banks are the one who borrow from the Fed. And so you, you have to sort of, you have to slow banks down. And then the banks have to then slow down consumers and companies and that credit channel, they call it, it's, it's really slow. And you, you, we've seen it, right? We've seen from 2008 to 2020, interest rates were basically zero. And it took all, that's like almost, what is that, 12 years? It took a super long time for all that monetary, so they're printing trillions of dollars. I mean, it took a long time for that to feed into the economy. So there's like this, it's actually funny. I was, I've been reading this paper. So Milton Friedman, famous economist, is uh, a conservative economist, some would say monetarist. He has this famous quote. I uh, just found it uh, reading his paper. The central empirical finding in my conclusion is that monetary actions have a long and variable lag on economics, right? On economic conditions. And he wrote that in 1961. <laughs> so that's a generally like, that's like, how it works. And then specifically, right, we just have $5 trillion of stimulus, fiscal stimulus that went into the economy. And that has to like kind of work its way through the economy. And, and, and then it's like we juiced the economy. Hmm. And that's working against the monetary um, policy that's trying to slow everything down. And those two things will eventually, that fiscal stimulus will and has, it, it's going away, right? The student loan payments are res resuming. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, but like child poverty rates were at point. Five, I think a year ago, and they've jumped to 12.2. They've doubled in the last 12 months because a lot of the programs supporting, you know, SNAP and welfare and stuff have basically diminished. So there's a lot coming out of the economy, but that's the, the essence of it is that just, you know, 350 million people, hundreds of millions of, of different actors, companies, it's slow. It's so slow. So is this something like where somebody eats a pot brownie and they're like, hmm, there was nothing there? I don't feel anything. <laughs> let me let me eat three more of them. And then, <laughs> there's a lag, <laughs> and then it all hits you. All that stimulus hits you at one time. Is that what you're describing? That is a that is not the analogy I was imagining, but that's a that's a decent one because like, and then like the problem is like you can't really unwind it. Yeah, 
right? You just kind of have to work your way out of it slowly too. Because like by the time it's hitting you, hitting the economy, to unwind it has the same long and variable lag. And so the Fed, like it's just to look at what's happened recently, right? Inflation hit the economy May 2021. If you're in real estate, you saw it in your rents, your rents, just everything. Mm -hmm. The economy woke up May 2021 with the vaccine and all this stuff. And, you know, it just roared. We had inflation. I don't know what it was. I feel like rents were up 20, 30% for us. Mm -hmm. And, and like that's May 2021. The Fed doesn't start raising rates till a year later, a year. And there was zero all through that period. And you look back and you're like, well, that was crazy. And so now just flip that, right? Inverse it is what mm. you know, Warren Buffett always says, invert it. So you, you flip that and say, okay, now all of a sudden we, everything's going bad and they keep rates high despite all that. Okay. And they're just sort of like, there's a great quote. I don't know if you know this quote. The Fed talks like a trader, but acts like an accountant. Like they, they talk a good game, but they always look in the rearview mirror when they make their decisions. Oh, okay. So- if we're understanding the lag well, it's because when you make the decision, the effect is an instant. So again, an oversimplified analogy here. We took some caffeine and it took a minute to kick in and we just kept rates at zero and then whew, we feel great and we realize we're feeling a bit too great. This kid needs to go to bed at some point. Let's give him some NyQuil. And then there's a period of time after you take the NyQuil before the NyQuil kicks in. And these economic decisions that they're making are always, well, we have a problem. How do we fix the problem? And it takes a minute before that kicks in. But as we're sitting here making financial decisions, trying to decide what we should buy, what we should invest in, where we should put our money, we're trying to make those decisions in real time. And your argument is that there's going to be a lag after the Fed makes big jumps. And so you're not going to feel it right away. Is that pretty accurate? Yeah, I mean, that's 100% accurate. And the debate I thought we were going to have, David, was like, there'd be a soft landing because unemployment's so low and job growth has been so strong and, every, and households are so healthy. And, and so even though that's always how it has worked, this time is different because, you know, it's just like a special moment. Okay. Well, let me give you the fight you were looking for because that is going to be more fun. Just as I don't want this to be clipped and someone puts it on TikTok and say, David's saying there's no recession. <laughs> That's always the fear you're going to have, right? Let me play that, that, uh, that hypothetical role. I do think there is a chance that some other president gets elected and says, I need to make the economy look good. So I'm going to come in and I'm going to lower rates again, and we're going to create some new form of QE. Maybe they don't do the exact same thing because that would look reckless, but they come up with a fancy name and they do it a different way. But it effectively is a new form of stimulus. And then just when we were supposed to crash, woof, we go and then the plane flies even higher than ever, which theoretically could cause an even bigger crash later. What do you what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, there's so so different way to say it is like during these lags, right? New things can happen. Like we have peace in in Ukraine. That's like another thing. I think that's actually could be the most positive um, disin disinflationary uh, effect. But in your specific scenario, it, it would it would still be lag, right? It's you're talking about 2025, and so I mean, this is why it's so hard because you you have to take in the psychology of the institutions we're talking about. You know, is the Fed likely to want to drop rates again. And we know about the Fed and if you read about their history, because there's a lot of history at you know, understand the Fed. There's great, great books about about the history of the Fed. The institutional character of it is that they um are slow, super slow, and they have like um 
biases or preferences, if you want to call it preferences. So for example, they idealize Paul Volcker, who was a Fed chair in sort of 79 to 88, I think. And, and so he, he's a Fed chair that sort of battled inflation and won mm-hmm. and goes down in history. Mm-hmm. And so everybody wants to be like Paul Volcker. And then there's this other guy, Arthur Burns, who was Fed chair before Volcker, and he goes down history as being like sort of disaster. And what he did, there was rampant inflation in the 70s, like 20%. There was a recession in 74, and inflation came down, and they then dropped rates. And in 75, he drops rates again because inflation had come down, and inflation came back. That goes down to one of the Fed's sort of biggest mistakes in history. And so like all institutions always fight the last battle. You know, they don't fight like the, you know, that's just the bias towards fighting the most recent. And so I just think there's a huge institutional bias or preference away from dropping rates and QE, even if there's political pressure. Anyways, let me go back to the magnitude point. If anybody knows Nassim Tlaib, you know, who wrote Black Swan and Anti-Fragile and tons of really good books. I recommend all of them. He has this point he makes, which is that like, when you look at the risk of drinking a glass of water, I said there's a 1% chance, it's a really small chance, 0.1% chance that it's poisoning you and die, right? What's the chance you're going to drink that water, right? So the magnitude matters more than the, the chance. Hmm. And so whether you have a business or your career, we're talking about real risks here. We're not talking about if it's going to be really good or kind of good, like we were talking in 2020 or in 2019 or 18, right? We're talking about like real risks. And so the downside risk is just not, it's not worth what you're getting paid to taking it. And that's why I'm obsessed with the magnitude. And I always adjust my chance by saying like, I say 80% chance of recession, but I don't mean like probabilistically, I just mean like on a weighted adjusted basis, because you look at all of the countervailing factors in the world, China, Russia, inflation, deficits. And I say, well, this is a time for caution. That's just sort of the, my bottom line. Yeah. I'd like to follow up on that. So the interesting thing in in the real estate side of of things, it, it seems like a lot of people are scared of selling their property because then they can't get into a new property and they're going to have a higher interest rate, right? So going into the recession, do you feel like real estate itself will be impacted pretty adversely or do you think the sort of housing stalemate will continue? Yeah. So real estate is typically highly impacted because it's high, it's very sensitive interest rates and things that are sensitive to capital flows are more impacted, right? So things that are not impacted, just an example, like food, food typically not very, or liquor, not very impacted by by this type of um, change in the economic environment. And typically real estate, which is, has a lot of debt, and that's why it's so interest rate sensitive, is heavily impacted by it. And then some real estate's worse than others, right? So you, you asked about housing. Housing is actually usually less impacted, but it depends on what kind of housing. So it's already, real estate, at least in the commercial world or an institutional world, is definitely in a recession. Like the institutional real estate's in a recession. That's a fact. Can you define what institutional real estate is for everyone at home? Yeah, I would say it's when it's being bought, owned, or sold by a company, by like a, a certain scale, I would say like, you know, when you're talking about in the tens of millions or hundreds of millions or billions... So not an individual who's buying like a house or two houses.
Whenever I used to travel, I would get that creeping feeling that I locked my back door. How do I know my property is going to be safe while I'm away? But not anymore, thanks to Simply Safe Home Security. I'm about to go on a three-week trip to Copenhagen, but am I tripping about my trip? Nope. With award-winning security and peace of mind from Simply Safe, I don't need to worry. Simply Safe is a super amazing alarm system that I actually installed in my house myself personally in less than 30 minutes, and there's so much peace of mind knowing that there's something in place to protect my homes, my goods, and my John Mayer shrine. Simply Safe systems have high-tech sensors that detect break-ins, fires, and floods, indoor and outdoor cameras to keep watch night and day, 24/7 professional monitoring at less than $1 a day, plus Simply Safe professional monitoring agents can even help stop crime in real time by speaking to intruders through the wireless indoor camera. Hey, hey, bud, get out of here. It's like that, but it's a lot better, I imagine. And if you buy the system and you don't love it, you can get a full refund with Simply Safe's 60-day money-back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/pockets. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Pretty good little episode, right? While you were listening, you could have been getting paid rent with RentApp. Landlords love RentApp because it makes rent collection a breeze. RentApp uses ACH bank transfers to deposit funds directly into your account. Setup is straightforward for renters, and landlords don't need to download anything. Both have peace of mind with the digital transaction history. Isn't it time you made landlording a little easier? RentApp, the best way to pay or collect rent. Learn more at rent.app landlord. That's rent.app landlord. Calling all property owners and operators. Are you managing a multifamily property and looking to elevate your residents' living experience? Introducing Quantum Fiber Internet, your go-to choice for speedy internet your residents will love. The process is as seamless as Quantum Fiber service. Starting at just $50 a month, your residents can enjoy fast, reliable internet that will make them love where they live even more. Connect with your local fiber representative today. Learn more at q.com slash go big. I wonder how they got that domain. That's q.com slash go big. Limited availability. Service and rate in select locations only. Taxes and fees apply. 360 Wi-Fi and other equipment lease charges, taxes, and fees are excluded from price for life offer and may be increased. Whether you need to buy or sell, or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes to help you see new homes first. And they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like, so you can find a home that's just right for you, whether that's a cabin, a craftsman, or a castle. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours even on the same day with a local Redfin agent who can help guide you through the whole home buying process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents have the experience to help you get the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put towards what matters most to you, like your next home. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. So you mentioned that typically things that have that are so interest rate sensitive are going to be hit, right? So we're talking about real estate in this capacity can you help us understand, you know, because it, it tends to sound a little doom and gloom, which it's a recession, so it's a very serious thing. But how can investors take ownership during a time like this? Do you have any tips for people that are looking to get in the real estate space or looking to just maintain what they have? Yeah, I mean, uh, my theme here is, is caution. And, and I'll just go to the, 
the be- the the greats, the goat here. So Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, right? They always talk about being patient. They say, "Sit on sit on my hand, sit on my butt." I have this quote from Charlie Munger. He says, "It takes character to sit with all that cash and do nothing." And so I believe that it's going to get worse before it gets better. Stanley Druckenmiller, who's like a famous investor, also he just he says he's waiting for the fat pitch. And I think that being patient is very much underestimated. It's like undervalued by people because they feel like activity is what drives value. And then like sort of older you get, the more you realize that like it's activity during certain periods that really matter. It's like, if you think back and look on your career, list the top five decisions you made that were most impactful to your life. You can know it's super concentrated. It's a magnitude thing again. I think it's not what generally like you get from social media that's like there's all this like activity that's going to matter. It's actually like inactivity. Like in 2021, most people should have been more inactive, <laughs> right? All those day traders. So it's a contrarian stance. It's saying, hey, if you follow what everybody else does, you sort of join the party. And then there's a lag that you may be jumping in during the lag. And then once you planted your flag there, the consequences hit and you're sort of caught off guard in a sense. Yeah, there's another uh, quote for you by um, Andy Grove, who's uh, one of the founders of Intel. He says, uh, make reversible decisions quickly and irreversible decisions slowly. Oh, you know what? I've heard of that described by Jeff Bezos in Amazon. He has a policy because Amazon's growing incredibly fast. They almost cannot keep up with the the speed of their growth. So with his leadership team, he talks about one-way doors and two-way doors. And so a one-way door is the decision that once you go in that way, you cannot come back out. It cannot be reversed. A two-way door is a decision that you make that if you realize this isn't where I wanted to go, you can come right back out. And so what he says is that this is a two-way door. If you could make the wrong call and then reverse it, just make it. Don't sit here and six months analyze what to do. This is a one-way door. You need to stop and actually put the time into making sure you made the right decision before you invest a significant amount of resources, capital, energy, whatever the case may be. And I thought that was really good when it comes to our own uh, point of making decisions. If it's a two-way door, it's okay to go a little bit quicker. So what I've told people before is when it comes to house hacking, for instance, here's a practical example. I don't know, do I want to buy in that part of town or this part of town? And what if I end up not liking my neighbor? And and I don't know about the color of that. And so they just sit there and for five years, they're analyzing what they should do, right? When I look at it, that's obviously a two-way door. You buy that house, you rent out the rooms to other people or it's several units. And if you don't like it, you just rent, make it a rental and you move out and get another one. So as long as you make sure it would cash flow if you didn't live there, that does not require an intense amount of decision making. Or you start a business, very low uh, actual money that you had to put into it. It's just going to be elbow grease. You don't like it, (laughs) throw it out the door, go somewhere else versus some investments, significant down payment going to be very difficult to sell to somebody else. That's when you really want to take some time to think about. So Ben, on that note, what are some areas where you see could be two-way doors and some that you see could be one-way doors moving into a potential recession? Yeah. I mean, I love what all the things you just said. A lot of times that first step, you don't realize it, but actually what you're buying is learning. You're trying to get up the learning curve to mastery. And I've learned this entrepreneuring you know, in the, in the beginning of Funrise, I was obsessed with trying to plan things out. And then I l- learned that you can't plan anything out <laughs> and, <laughs> and that you have to learn by doing. And so taking many low risks is is really smart because you actually end up learning more than you think. 
So like being inactive doesn't mean you're not putting yourself out there. A lot of people I find, what they're worried about is actually looking dumb. They're worried about making a mistake they're going to be embarrassed by. And that's a huge barrier because that doesn't matter. And the sooner you can get to that place, the, the sooner you're going to actually get to mastery and excellence. And so like, if you're trying to basically get started, I would just say go. And then just size the opportunity to the amount you can afford, right? Don't get over your skis. So what about in terms of if you are deploying money, right, during this economic climate, where, where would you recommend people deploy money outside of real estate? Are there other ways that people can be diversifying outside of the real estate side of things? Well, we are a real estate investment platform. We have $7 billion in real estate, and I think we have 37,000 doors or something. So we have, we have a lot of real estate scale, and, we, and, we, and, I, and I can talk really specifically about what we're seeing in real estate, which you asked, and I got to the philosophy. We launched a venture platform, so we're investing in late-stage tech, because I think tech is actually going to do pretty well, even if we have a recession, because AI is like a generational breakthrough, like the personal computer. Goldman Sachs it has, says it basically has a chance of being 500 times more productive than the personal computer. So I've been actively investing for our investors in high-tech, I can name companies, Databricks and DBT. But, and that's been, I think, really, really productive. And I think it's been awesome. And then on the real estate side, probably going to have confirmation bias for you guys, but I'm a bear on downtown cities. I'm old enough to remember when DC and San Francisco and New York and LA were just absolute and horrible. Like just downtowns were just like, you didn't go there. Yeah, L.A. for sure. And that cycle is happening again. It's not going to be the same, but it's something like that's happening because the work from home is not going away. It's going to get worse, I mean, better, worse, whatever your perspective is, because like soon we'll have immersive VR and we'll have AI and you're just going to be, you're not going to go to the office. So I think that like if I were buying and we are buying, I'd be buying in you know, housing for families and riding the demographic trend trying to build like, you know, be in, in the suburbs. And I'd be focused on rental housing, not for sale housing, not flipping. Flipping, I think, has got a lot of risk right now because I think it's, the music could stop, mm-hmm. absolutely stop. That's what happens usually in a recession. The music stops and you don't want to be in a position where you have like a expensive loan and you can't sell the house. I'm feeling that a little bit. I feel like I've seen so many, so much changes in the flipping thing. And what I like about the rental side of things is, at the very least, we're trying to break even here. But if it does go south and you aren't exactly hitting your numbers, it'll take a very long time to really feel that impact. Whereas if you go into a flip, it's possible you know, to lose a big sum of money, right? 30, 40, 50, 60,000. I know people that are going through that right now. And that's like, that's a very difficult thing to absorb at one, in, in one gut punch. Yeah, that's actually one of my big learnings about real estate. I mean, now I've done it for 20 years is that you really want to get in a position where time works for you in real estate. Like time's at your back. It's a tailwind. And there's a lot of real estate deals where you time, ha- you know, time's working against you, speed. And I think that's always a mistake. It may work out occasionally, occasionally, but really the power of real estate is this compounding growth over time. And it's sneaky how much that can really, I mean, that can really work for, for you. And so I always try to look for deals that are like, well, if it doesn't go well and I have a year, the next year is going to be, will be better. Time's the most valuable asset, right? The bottom line is time is, is most valuable thing 
in the universe and seeing it as that, it's so powerful. Once you see the power of, of time, you, you know, whether it's I'll wait the person out or I'll wait the you know, rental, the rental, that's why rental housing, I think is, is ultimately the much better risk adjusted return. I don't think you make that much more, more money on, on flipping considering how much more risky it is. And how much more, uh, like taxes that you pay, mm-hmm. how much more closing costs you have. It's a very inefficient way. I like to look at, at money like water in a bucket just because to understand how much money is worth is so tricky when the value of the dollar moves around so much. So I, instead of trying to figure out exactly like how much money this would be, I think about how much energy it would be. So in a flip, I buy a property below market value where I added some energy to a bucket and then I improve the, the condition of the property, which hopefully improves the value, which adds more water in the bucket. Then when I sell it, I pour all of that water into a different bucket, which would be my bank account. But during that process of selling, you've got all of these hidden costs that you weren't expecting. You've got the closing costs of the realtor. You've got capital gains taxes. All that water spills. So even if you did a great job of putting the water in the bucket originally, which is the part you control, in the best case scenario, your win is still a lot less than what it should have been versus what you're describing, buying rental property and waiting for a long time. The energy stays in the bucket. When, you're, when your property goes up in value, you're not taxed on that. Uh, you have options of getting the energy out of the bucket, like a cash out refinance that you're in control of. You mm-hmm. do that when you want to, when rates benefit you. You don't have to because you have to sell this property and where the market is is, is where it's at. It really gives you the control to monitor the stuff you're talking about, Ben, the condition of the economy. And make the decisions to extract your water and reinvest it somewhere else when it benefits you. Is that what you're getting at when you're talking about playing the long game with real estate? Totally, totally. And also, like, think about it. If you sold in 2021 versus if you're selling in late 2023, you know, if you're selling in 2021, there's 100 buyers and it's really a good time to sell. I mean, I'm closer to the commercial real estate, but like, you know, I've sold stuff in 2021 where I, you know, 30, 100 bidders. I mean, it just, it went for millions above the price we thought we'd get. If you sell now, there's like maybe two and they're going to lowball you. And so having the ability to wait, you know, basically sell on your timing, you can be filling that bucket up. But if the tsunami comes and knocks you down, like my experience in 2008, like I learned that like the macro will swamp the micro. You can spend so much energy on on, you know, doing that flip and having the perfect design and like 2008 hits or, or the pandemic hits or yeah, it's so much more powerful than you, you are. That's one of the things, frankly, that's frustrating about being a real estate investor, because we listen to podcasts like this. We take courses, we read books. We, we like the feeling as a human of control. If I just learn how to do this, that's why I think a lot of us like spreadsheets is they give you a feeling of control. Like you can create order out of chaos and it makes you feel safe. But the reality is, like you said, it's maybe 10 to 20% how good of an operator you are Mm -hmm. and 80 to 90% what the conditions are that you're operating in. And we just don't like it. It's uncomfortable. I was thinking when you were talking about the nature of commercial lending, it's got balloon payments and it's based on the NOI of a property. You can have a property that has a really solid cash flow. You're crushing it, but your balloon payment comes due and you got in at a 3% rate. Now rates are 8% and it's not going to cash flow at that time. 
Or it happens to come at a time like right now where office space is not as desirable as other spaces. We're in this flux period. There's a bit of a lag there. Like, is office valuable? Is it going to be valuable? Where are we going? Are people going to work from home? No one knows. So no one really wants to jump into that game until we get some stability there. So you could have a, a property with office space that you've increased the NOI on. Maybe you've doubled your NOI. You've done everything an operator is supposed to do. You're a stud. But like you said, the macroeconomic conditions work against you. The tidal wave wipes you out no matter how much you're working out your legs and how strong you got. And it's just it, it's a bummer. I don't know another way to say it when somebody has like committed themselves to mastering their craft. And then some of the decisions that happen from the overall economy just wipe it out. Is that, is that what you're getting at? Definitely. And they sort of like, you know, lemon aid out of the lemons thing is that like, that's definitely going to happen to you anyways in your life. It happened to me, you know, essentially the learning you get out of it and the reputation you get from how you behave during that period. And you see a lot about other people. Mm. <laughs> you see, well, how, how this person behaved in that situation. I mean, you get a lot out of those periods. It doesn't feel like it at the time, but like you're probably in your thirties, you know, that's actually pretty you have decades left to, to make it up. And that's why I'm obsessed with the recessions, right? Because you sort of like, you can, you can, lots of people worked a decade to get here and then they can get wiped out just because of the tidal wave. And so I don't think there's going to be tidal wave. I'm not saying it's going to be as bad as 08, but it's, it is for office. It's worse. Mm -hmm. The lack of control is, is something people emotionally, it's a cognitive bias. You don't want to believe how little control you have over, over your life. That's a, it's a solid point that you're getting at there. And, and I think we judge people that fail a lot of the time as don't look at this person. They failed, but based on what you're saying, you're making a good point. Sometimes the best person to trust is the person that has already failed. They learn the lessons like who you can trust when something happens, how to maybe see it coming the next time a little bit better than the person that's never failed that has this, I guess maybe an analogy could be you have a fighter that's like undefeated because they've only fought bad opponents. Gives this impression that they're the best, but the person who's fought the best in the world may have a much more losses on their record, but they're going to be the better fighter. I think when it comes to finances and real estate investing, there's an argument to be made for that. You see things coming that other people wouldn't. I know... What I've been thinking about lately is just how do I start playing more defense, right? Like the last 10 years, the the metrics of success we measured were how many doors did you get? How much real estate did you buy? Um, how much cash flow could you acquire? And that's what everybody at every meetup or every event or on social media, everyone's posting the same stuff. Like this is how much I acquired. And as we're slipping into what could be a recession, and by the way, we didn't get into it, but I do think we could go into an economic recession and residential real estate could still stay strong. That might have been I agree the, with that. the fight. You're like, okay, so we can't fight over that either, unfortunately. But dang it. As we're heading into a recession, victory to me looks like surviving. Okay. Like a lot of the competition is going to get wiped out. How many of our assets, our businesses, our net worth, how much can we hold on to? You just have to assume you're going to lose some. So, Rob, what are some steps that you've been thinking about taking when it comes to a recession? Uh, the fact that you and I are both heavily exposed with short-term rentals, and that's probably mm -hmm. going to mm -hmm. be a factor that's more sensitive to people feeling like they're less wealthy. They're less likely to go take a, a vacation to a nice property if they feel like they're poor. Now's the time to start thinking defensively. Let's uh, get some ideas from you about how you've positioned things. Sure. Well, first and foremost, most of where I invest are, are um, like – national park markets, right? So the Smoky Mountains mm. and um, mm -hmm. stuff like that, right? So I think that those markets tend to be a little bit more resilient simply because people are always going to go to the Smoky Mountains, but maybe they can't 
you know, buy plane tickets for eight people in their family and go to Disney World, but they can go to what I always call Mother, Mother Nature's Disney World, like national parks, right? So I think for people that are looking to maybe get into the game, those for me always seem to be markets that perform relatively well. I'm not acquiring quite as uh, viciously as I was, but for a multitude of reasons, it's not necessarily because I'm scared or I'm like, uh, don't want to buy things during a recession. I actually am such a big believer. I've just had this realization over the past few months, which is a very simple realization, by the way. So like what I'm about to say isn't really the newest idea, but I think the best defensive tactic, anyone who's already heavily invested in short-term rentals or really anything is just portfolio optimization. I think that this is a huge, huge thing for me right now. So when you put it into perspective of a short-term rental, let's say you're buying a $400,000 house. Well, you're going to need 20 to 25% down, right? So you're looking at $100,000 to close on that loan plus another 20 or $30,000 to actually set it up and get it ready. So 130,000 bucks, that's not a small amount. And then on that 130,000, you're trying to make a 10 to 20% return, right? That's what we're fighting for in, in any deal these days on the short-term rental side. But what I've come to, to uh, the conclusion that instead of doing that and spending a ton of money trying to get a great return on a new house, what can I do to actually raise the revenue of my current portfolio? How can I make more money with my portfolio? I've talked about this a bunch of different ways, but I'm adding amenities to my properties that cost way less than buying a house, but will have a really big impact on my revenue. So I built this really crazy treehouse deck uh, to an outstanding amenity at my house at the Smoky Mountains. And I think that it will increase my revenue by 15 to 20,000 because we added a hot tub. And if that is true, I'll have like a 50% return on that specific investment, right? And so when I start calculating my portfolio, I'm like, okay, what are these five to $20,000 investments I can make to make that much more every single year in, in gross yearly revenue? So my defense is just really solidifying every single property and maximizing revenue to the highest extent. I think a lot of people do get into this mindset of like, I need to get another short-term rental. I need to get another door. It is a very, very popular methodology and mindset, but not enough people focus on just making the most amount of money from the actual properties that they already have. So that's what I'm doing right now. What about you? I think I, I'm operating under the pressure that inflation's probably going to keep happening even as we raise rates. That it's odd that we've raised rates this much and residential real estate values haven't dropped and food is still more expensive and gas is still more expensive and cars are still more expensive. It's odd that raising rates hasn't actually dropped the price of a lot of things. It's just caused money to change hands less frequently, which has caused people to feel less wealthy. So I feel like you have to still put your money in smart places. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean buy more real estate. That could mean putting it in reserves. That could mean uh, doing exactly what you're describing, Rob. If I spend X amount of dollars here, I can increase my uh, ROI in this place. But I'm thinking about the type of asset I'm putting it in much more than just how do I maximize ROI? I think that when your economy is doing very well, your thoughts are, how do I get the most return on the money I possibly can? As we head into a recession, I operate under the understanding that I want to keep as much of this as I can and be positioned when we come out the other side to be 
able to go, you know, run after the stuff you're getting and get into acquisition and play offense again. Ben, what's your thoughts on victory in a recession is is winning at defense? Do you think that I'm just Am I off on that? You've studied this a lot more oh, than man, I have. I think you're right on the money. You, you know, you just said this, Rob, that making you know, your goals make 10 to 20% on, on your investments. And like, you can go get, you can go get that in the market today. There's good mortgage REITs that have yields of 13% current. And if interest rates fall, which I think they will, that will appreciate and they're liquid. You can then sell that and get into a uh, property. So with with treasuries at five percent, it just seems like the Fed wants you on the sidelines. And there's you know the saying, "Don't fight the Fed." Like you know, go on the sidelines because they're they're going to punish you for not being on the sidelines. Any good sports team, they're they're good at defense and offense. And the the team that only can play offense, like it, you watch them, you're like, and you just they just get beat time and time again. So I I think that's right. And I and you I wanted to say one more thing, David. You said about two way doors. The funny thing about two-way doors is that a lot of times people, they get invested in the decision they made. It's called the endowment effect. And it means basically once, they're, once they made a decision, they feel like to unmake it, they made a mistake. Mm. Like if you, may, if you, have, if you own, I, I don't remember, Rob, you, maybe, you own 10 short-term rentals and you need to sell one at a loss. So now you have cash to hold the other nine. That's Okay. That's the long game. And, and so like, interesting think you said portfolio, portfolio thinking, it doesn't matter what you paid for something. It, you look at, the, at this exact moment, what's the best yeah. decision? Are you a buyer or are you a seller? And, uh, and because interest rates are so high, it just, it, it pushes you into the liquid market. Yeah. This is mega. It's mega interesting that you say that because as real estate investors, I think over the last few years, we have been like in this mindset of deploy, deploy, deploy. If you have cash in your bank account, you're a dummy. You need to be moving that cash and making money, right? So that's that's sort of this mindset that I've always had that I've been deploying a lot. And recently, I've been holding on to a lot. I've been saving a lot. Uh, I've got multiple companies. I pay a lot of people now. <laughs> like, I have a lot of real estate. I just like to make sure that I have reserves. And uh, I was talking to Cody Sanchez a couple weeks ago, and I told her, I was like, I kind of feel weird being a real estate investor that has any amount of liquidity because I've always been trained to just deploy it. And she was like, yeah, real estate investors are kind of weird like that. You know, rule number one, don't go bankrupt. And I was like, wow, that's, that's a good, that's a good rule. She's like, keep money, hold on to it. Don't go bankrupt. That is rule number one above all the other real estate principles or investing principles. It's never going to be a bad thing to have some cash in your savings. Right. And so I think I am starting to move into this mindset a little bit more of saving and that's interesting that you say, oh, okay, maybe I sell a property at a slight loss or I take an equity hit so that I have reserves for the other 40 properties. I think that's honestly something I hadn't really considered. Yeah, the, the CEO of Zoom, if you ask his advice, you see him on, on, on podcast, he, he says, survive, 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 survive. He repeats it like 12 times. And look at Zoom. I mean, just like he was in the right place at the right time, but he had to, he had to get there. And that fat pitch came and it, it worth whatever, tens of billions. Such a good point. And, and you know what, it, Ben, it comes back to your perspective that the macro economy is so much more impactful than the micro. Okay. So in an environment of plenty of prosperity and peace, winning is about acquiring more wealth or more friends or better relationships, whatever you're measuring, it's by getting more. If you're in a war, winning is about surviving. 
Nobody is in a war worrying about, I want to be driving a Ferrari instead of a Civic. They just want to live, right? I think the, the environment dictates what the rules of success are. And what the question that we'll get a lot here is, okay, David, how do I make money in this market? Well, that's a good question. It also presupposes that the goal is, if we're going into a recession, you should be trying to make as much money as you can. Mm-hmm. I would tend to think the goal is, how do you keep as much of the wealth as you've been able to create? How do you survive this and position yourself so that when we come into a time of peace, you're ready to go forward? Now, none of us are going to turn down an opportunity to make money Mm-mm. in a recession. I think my expectations just drop that I don't feel bad if I'm not increasing my net worth by as much or I'm not adding more doors as it would be if we were in a time where it was easy to do that. Right now, holding on to the real estate you have, not losing as much money, seeing your revenue not drop as much is a win. Have you have those thoughts crushed your mind yet, Rob? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that that's the big one now. It's like you you grow at such a fast rate when things are going well. I I guess it is just a weird feeling to say, hey, it's still a victory to just have what you got. You know, <laughs> if you're staying, if you're keeping your net worth where it's at, that's much better than losing it. Right. So I think it's just a lot of people are having to kind of they're being forced to settle a little bit. And I think that makes people feel like they're failing. But the it's the opposite. I think it's the very opposite of failing to hold on to what you have. And it's like kind of a new thing that I'm going through myself. Like a race car driver, I mean, if you if you never hit the brakes, you would definitely crash. An all around player can can play plays the highs and the lows. That's a great point. Nobody in a race car is smashing on the gas when they're in the middle of a hard turn. It's when you hit the straightaway. I I love that analogy right there. There's some economies that are a straightaway, and it's all about how fast can you go. There's other economies that are dangerous with a lot of twists and turns, and it's all about how safe can you go. You make wealth in the straightaways. You maintain wealth when you're in these turns. And studying the track lets you know what you should be doing. And I really appreciate being here, Ben, to kind of explain why this is important to study. Uh, If people want to reach out to you and learn more, where can they go? Um, I'm on Twitter, Ben Millerize, and we're on funrise.com. Hit me up. Awesome. Rob, what about you? Uh, you can find me over on YouTube at Rob Built, R O B U I L T, on Instagram too. Uh, depends on what you want. You want short form, funny reels, or do you want long form videos that teach you how to do real estate? Uh, you can you can pick your poison. What about you, David? You can find me at David Green 24, the most boring yet stable screen name <laughs> in the world and going into recession you definitely want stability so go give me a follow on social media at david green 24 or visit david green 24.com and see what i got going on we here at bigger pockets are dedicated to giving you the real the raw what's actually happening and racking our brain to come up with strategies that will work in times of feast or famine there's always something to study and there's always something to do to improve. So Ben, thank you for being here today and sharing your wisdom. It's not often we get to talk to someone who actually studies worst case scenarios and how to survive in those. So everybody go give Ben a follow and reach out and let him know that you appreciate him on today's show. And if you're watching this on YouTube, leave us a comment. Let us know what you thought. This is David Green for Rob, the short-term speed racer, Rob Solo, <laughs> signing off.
The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom and the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and bam, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.